I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about three areas of your life. So I want you to think, first of all, about your relationships. If you're married, think about your marriage, uh, your family, maybe your siblings, um, you know, your friendships. Think about your relationships. Then I want you to think about your work. So maybe your career or where you go to work or who you interact with at work and kind of how things are going there. Maybe you own a business. Think about, think about your work life. And then thirdly, I want you to think about your spiritual life. So your walk with the Lord and kind of what that's like. Now, in truth, all of these are together, right? We recognize as followers of Jesus, our lives are not segmented. It's all spiritual. It's all a life of worship that we live up to the Lord. But I want you to think about them in those three different uh, segments this morning because I want to ask you, with regard to your relationships, would you say that you are thriving in those relationships? Are they thriving or would you say they're just kind of surviving? Which of those would be true? Um, when you think about your work life or your career, maybe your business, you would, say, is, would you say my business or my work life is thriving or I'm just getting through? I'm, I'm just kind of keeping my head above water or I'm just enduring, I'm surviving. And then when it comes to your relationship with the Lord, obviously most importantly of all, would you say that your walk with the Lord is a thriving um, relationship or does it seem like something's wrong and there is a uh, listlessness to it, a lifelessness to it? Are you thriving or are you surviving? Now, let me give you a definition, and maybe this will help you. I think you all already know it anyway, but we know that to thrive simply means to flourish. Um, it is that something is prospering, or here's a good Bible word, it's fruitful. There's a, there's a fruit that's coming in those relationships or in that walk with the Lord or in your work life. Are you thriving? Now, the true answer for all of us would likely be that there's not one answer, right? Because in reality, for all of us, there are some places in our lives where we feel like, man, that's really fruitful and flourishing right now. But in this other area, I'm struggling a bit and struggling a bit, and that seems barren. And, and there are seasons where, wow, I was really thriving in that season, but now somehow I'm having some difficulties. So it's, it's, it's not a once and done uh, kind of answer, one answer for all time. I get that. But I do know that all of us absolutely want to be able to say, I'm thriving in my life. Man, my relationships are, are thriving. My friendships are flourishing. I feel like I'm right where God wants me to be in serving him in my career or in my place of business. In my spiritual life, I feel like I'm really kind of walking with the Lord and, and, and uh, being what he wants me to be. I know that's our desire but I also recognize that we sometimes miss it, and it feels like it's not the case. And so here's what I want to do, beginning today, and for the next five Sundays, I want to help all of us take some steps toward that. I want thriving to become the norm for us. It's, it's never going to be perfect in this life, but I want it to become the norm of our lives, that we're thriving in all of these areas, really in all of our lives. And so for five Sunday mornings, we're going to talk about this. And not only on Sunday mornings, but in most of our life groups, as you gather with your groups, you're going to be talking about this as well. And together, as we study the Word on Sundays and as we talk about it and apply it in our life groups, we're going to learn to build a life 
that flourishes. And by God's grace, to make certain that we're building a church that is flourishing and that will flourish for generations to come. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew all of these five weeks, and we're going to learn all of this from the pen and from the example of the Apostle Matthew. Now let me take just a minute and tell you what are the five things that we're going to be talking about, kind of these, these five areas of thriving uh, that we're going to discuss. And I'm going to go through these really quickly. You may not get them all written down today. It's okay. Uh, but let me map it out for you, and then we'll hit these five points over the next five Sundays. To begin with, today we're going to talk about growing as a disciple of Christ. And this is, this is kind of where it begins. Growing as a disciple of Christ. We're also going to talk about uh, becoming a witness for Christ. How can I thrive as a witness for Jesus? Number three, we're going to talk about living as a servant of Christ by serving others. Number four, we'll talk about growing deeper in our love. How can I increase in my love for Christ and for people? And then number five, uh, we're going to talk about becoming a kingdom-minded person. And this simply means kind of getting my eyes off my own little life and seeing the kingdom purposes that God has in this world and being a part uh, of his kingdom work. Now, as we learn these five disciplines, and as these five disciplines become true of us, then and only then, and I want you to hear me on both campuses, I want you to listen carefully, then and only then will we begin to live the life that all of us long to live. Then and only then we'll begin to thrive in the life that God has designed for us and always intended that we live. In fact, may I coin a phrase? May I borrow a book title? Then and only then will you live your best life now. Have you heard of that book? In fact, I have to tell you that I I almost named this five-week series Matthew's Five Steps to Living Your Best Life Now. In fact, look at the screen. I actually had our graphics department create a book cover just because I have a wicked sense of humor. And I thought it would be a great title for this series, but Tracy said, no way. And so I listened to her and the Holy Spirit. But, but let me be clear. If you want to live your best life now, this is the way you get there. This is the way it happens. It is that when we learn to thrive in these areas. If you've been through Engage recently, you will recognize these five areas as our Brookstone Five. Maybe if it's been a while since you were engaged, you might have forgotten them. But, but many of you know these are not new things to us. These are the things that we value as a church. These are what we teach every person who joins Brookstone. We tell them coming in, these are the things that Brookstone values. These are the things that matter to us. And so we're going to talk about them over these five weeks. Now, here's our plan. I said that we would be in the book of Matthew the entire time, and we will. And so if you'd like to read ahead uh, over these next few weeks, begin in chapter 9. We're going to, we're, we're going to sort of skim uh, highlights from chapter 9 all the way to the end of the book, which is Matthew 28. In chapter 9, you have Matthew's call to be a disciple. And in Matthew 28, you have the closing words of Jesus and the great commission uh, that he gives to the church. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about those chapters or at least some highlights in those chapters. Uh, let me introduce Matthew to you just in case you're not really uh, familiar with him or his story. Many people know, of course, he was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. But let me tell you a few things about Matthew you may not be aware of. He was a Jewish man. I think we would probably assume that. 
But he was a Jewish man who had sold out to the Romans. At least that would have been the opinion of his, of his neighbors and his friends. He had sold out to the Romans because he became a publican. You know what a publican was? It was a tax collector. And so Matthew had enriched himself and, and advanced himself in his culture by taking from his own people the oppressive taxes that were being imposed by the Roman government. And because of that, by many of the Jewish people, Matthew would have been hated, understand this, even by some of the other disciples. They would have had a hard time being in the same room with, having fellowship with, at least in the beginning, with Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, and that made him hated by so many. He lived in Capernaum. He was a tax collector in the city of Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. He was the last disciple called where the Bible describes his calling. Now, there are five of the 12. We don't know how they were called. They just end up in the list of the disciples. But seven of them, we do know how they were called. The Scripture describes it to us. And Matthew is the final one whose calling as a disciple is described. He was the seventh disciple that Jesus called. And all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us about this moment when Jesus called him. It went like this. Uh, Matthew was sitting at his tax collector's table in his booth collecting taxes. Jesus uh, and a few of his disciples, the first few disciples, walk by, and Jesus stops and looks at Matthew. And he says two words, follow me. There's no arm twisting. There's no coercion. There's no convincing him. Two words, that simple, it's an invitation, and it's a command, follow me. In fact, look at what the Bible says, Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. Luke describes it this way. After this, he went out, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, left everything behind. He left everything behind, and he got up. And he began following Jesus. Wow. We're talking about a moment of life transformation, life redirection. Walked away from his career, walked away from everything that he had known, and he began to follow Jesus. Now, by the way, if the word Levi, the name Levi messes you up a little bit, don't be bothered by that. It's the same guy. Uh, both uh, Luke and Mark refer to him as Levi. That's his Hebrew name. Matthew, working with the Romans, would have gone by his Greek name. He calls himself Matthew, but Matthew and Levi are the same person. Okay? Today we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 16. And we're going to see in Matthew chapter 16 how to thrive as we grow as a disciple of Christ. By the way, before we read the passage, I want to point something out to you and ask you a question. Did you know that the word Christian is found in the Bible three times? Total, three times. Two of those times, it was used by unbelievers and was a term of derision. The third time, the only time it's used by a Christian speaking of himself or of his, his fellow Christians is when James talks about the fact that they suffer because of their being Christians. Three times the word Christian is used. The word disciple is used 273 times. 
And you should know, while there's nothing wrong with calling yourself a Christian, and I'm in no way implying that we shouldn't use the term, you should also recognize, however, that Jesus never used it, ever. Jesus never called his followers Christians. He always called them disciples. And so my question to you is, do you want to be a Christian or do you want to be a disciple? You may say, well, what's the difference? Well, let's talk about it. Uh, Matthew chapter number 16 is our passage, and, uh, and we're going to read that in just, in just a moment. Let me give you a principle just before we do, though. Write this down in your notes. You know, many people claim to be Christian. I just came from a part of the world where I was surrounded by Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And the fact is that very many of the Christians that I was around, people who call themselves Christians, aren't truly born-again Christians. They're simply Christian in, in their heritage. Their families are Christian. They were brought up Christian. They're not Muslim. They're not Jewish. They are Christian. Many people claim to be Christian. Maybe some of you in this room who really aren't, but you claim to be. So if someone claims to be a Christian, how can you really tell? Are they really a Christian? Well, listen to what Jesus said. It's in Matthew, I'm sorry, it's in John, actually. Chapter 15 and verse 8, this is what Jesus said. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus said that thriving, flourishing fruitfulness, Jesus said that thriving is the evidence of genuine discipleship. That the way that you can really tell if someone is a disciple of Jesus and not just a Christian in name only is that there will be some measure of thriving in their lives. Now that's not to say that every true Christian thrives and is fruitful and flourishing all the time in all ways. Of course not. That's, we know that's not true. But for everyone who truly is a disciple, there will be some ways in which there is some fruitfulness some thriving that's going on, okay? Let's read it. Chapter number 16, Matthew chapter 16, verse number 21. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned, Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are offensive to me. You are not savoring the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. And then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, if any man will follow me, if any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he shall reward every man 
according to his works. Verily or truly I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now you may have noticed that when I began reading the text in verse number 21, it begins with these words, from that time forth. And that is a prompt that we ought to read the context and see from what time forth, what's happening before this text. And many of you know chapter 16, so you know that in the preceding verses prior to verse number 21, Jesus has taken his disciples into a region called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Chapter 16, verse number 13 tells us that he has come to Caesarea Philippi. Now this is important because Caesarea Philippi is the power center uh, it, is the, it is the northern or the capital of the northern Herodian Empire under the rule of, the, of Herod Philip, Herod the, uh, Philip the Tetrarch. Uh, you may know the name Herod the Great, right? Well, when Herod the Great died, his empire was divided into three sections among his three sons. One of those was Philip, and Philip got that northern part of modern Israel on into Lebanon and around into into, uh, eastern parts of the world today, this large section. And in Caesarea Philippi, you had the center, the power center of that northern Herodian empire. It was also an outpost of the Roman government and It was a place where their power was displayed in that land. Think of the name, Caesarea Philippi. It was built by Philip, that's Philippi. It was built in honor of the emperor Caesar. So it's called Caesarea or Caesarea Philippi. Caesar's, um, uh, in honor of Caesar, built by Philip. It was in this place that there was this vast temple complex where there were cultic sacrifices made. It was the place where the Greek and Roman gods were worshipped. There was even a temple to Caesar there. It was the centerpiece of all official Roman, Herodian, military, political power, and cultic worship and philosophical learning. This was where they were. And it was against that backdrop that Jesus quizzed his disciples on his identity. Who do men say that I am? And they give him their answers. And he then asks in verse number six, or verse number 15, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers the question in verse number 16 when he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. All of these gods being worshiped in this region are dead gods. They're not even real gods. They're mere idols. But you are God in the flesh. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him in verse number 17 and says, You are right. Blessed are you, Simon. God has revealed this unto you. And I make you a promise. In fact, three promises. I make you these three promises, Peter, and to all the rest of you disciples, I will build my church. That's promise one. The gates of hell will not be able to hold it back. That's promise two. And you will have authority in this kingdom that I'm building. That's promise three. And can you imagine the excitement of those disciples? Like, yes, I knew you were the one. I knew that you were the the Messiah. I knew you were gonna bring in your kingdom. You can just see these disciples, they're high-fiving each other, chest bumping. They're like, yes. All those gods are going down. All that empire's going down. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. You can imagine they said, when are you gonna do it? 
Now? And Jesus says, not now. At least not now in the way that you're thinking. But before that happens, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to be crucified. They're going to kill me. And Peter said, shut up. (laughs) He did, really. It's exactly what he said. Not so, Lord. Do you see it? Not so. This will not happen to you. I will not allow this to happen. And Jesus takes the opportunity to to put Peter in his place and then to seize a teachable moment and teach his followers about true discipleship. Notice what he says in verse number 24. His response to Peter, verse number 23 rather, Jesus turned and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're offensive to me. He called Peter the devil. He said, you sound like the devil. Or maybe he was actually speaking to Satan who was influencing the words of Peter. That's what he said in Matthew 4.10. Do you remember it? They'll put it up on the screen for you. Matthew 4.10 says, away from me, Satan, Jesus ordered, speaking directly to the devil. It sounds like the same verbiage to me. Hey, loved ones, can I just give you a word of encouragement? Uh, If y'all are listening, shout amen. Be careful with your words. Satan can use your words. Remember that little saying we learned growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me? It's not true. Words can hurt. Words do hurt. And Satan can use our words. Jesus goes on to teach his disciples in this moment of what it means to be his disciple. And so what I want to do is take our remaining time and just draw from the text the very principles that Jesus lays out for them. And as they needed to learn these lessons so that they would truly be his disciples, you and I need to learn them as well. All right? Write the first one down. What Jesus teaches them and us is this, very simply, it is that disciples have devoted themselves to Jesus. This is what disciples do. Disciples devote themselves to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think Peter responded the way that he did? And Jesus said, I'm going to go to, we're going to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me. And Peter says, no, 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 they're not. That's not going to happen. Don't say that. Why do you think he responded that way? Do you think he was responding out of pure love and protective, a heart of protection for, for Jesus? Like, I love you. I'm not going to let that happen. I'll fight for you. I'll protect you, Lord. Do you think that's what he's doing? Or is it possible that maybe he's being selfish and greedy because Jesus had just gotten out of his mouth, I'm going to build a kingdom, hell won't prevail against it, you're going to have authority in it, and do you think maybe he's thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. If you're going to die, what about that kingdom thing? What about the authority we're supposed to have and how that hell is going to be overrun? Maybe he's looking out for his own place in the kingdom. Maybe he's just responding emotionally. You ever do that? I never do. (laughs) I know I do sometimes. He just didn't think it through, maybe. He just blurted out kind of the first thing that came to his mind. Maybe all of those are possibilities, but I think the answer of Jesus tells us everything that we need to know. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are offensive to me. Here's what I think is true. 
I think Peter was more committed to the idea of the kingdom and his place in it than he was to the king. And that's why he drew the response that he drew from Jesus. Now listen to what Jesus says in verse number 23. He says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are offensive unto me. Here's the problem, Peter. You savor not the things that be of God, but you are savoring the things that be of men. You are not savoring what I savor. You are savoring what you savor. Now, what, what is it? What does it mean to savor? If you have a more modern translation of the Bible, it probably uses this verbiage. It means to set your mind upon or to set your affections on. Here's what it means. That, if, that to savor what is of God is to begin to think about the things that God thinks of, to begin to think the way that God thinks, to, to set your mind on or align your thinking with the viewpoint or the thinking of God. Here's the principle. It's, it's, a, it's an un, unchanging principle that you and I as disciples must learn and live by. It is that as disciples, we must change the way that we think in order to be fully devoted to Christ. Remember, disciples are devoted to Christ. Well, what does devotion to Jesus look like? It looks like changing my mind so that I begin to think like Jesus thinks and I'm fully devoted to him. Which, by the way, we shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? Because the word disciple means a pupil or a student. It's a learner. I need to learn to think like Jesus thinks or to align my my viewpoints with his viewpoints so that I'm following him. If you want to be a disciple, you have to begin to think like Jesus thinks. Okay. Now, how do we do that? What, What can I do, what can you do in our lives to begin to align our thinking with the thinking of Jesus. I'm going to give you two suggestions. I think both of these are important, and I want you to write both of them down. The first one is, if you want to change your mind to think like Jesus thinks, to be a disciple fully devoted to Jesus by changing your mind, then you need to, number one, devote yourself to corporate worship. As a weekly habit, weekly practice, weekly principle in your life, devote yourself to corporate worship. Now, you may be thinking, wow, I didn't see that one coming. I'd like, is that really where you'd start? Is, is that the most important thing? Well, let's talk about it. In the first place, you say, well, why should I be committed to weekly, this weekly worship gathering? If I had no other reason to give you, I could give you Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. As the manner of some is, some are going to, but don't you do it. And even all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. So here's a biblical command that I need to value this gathering. But that's not the reason I'm going to give you today. The reason I want you to value and devote yourself to corporate worship is because of how it changes the way that we think so that we can be aligned in our thinking with Jesus and we will be fully devoted disciples of his. Listen to me. When we make the weekly worship gathering, what happens when we assemble as a body today Brookstone Church is assembling five different times in two different locations. When we assemble in each of these assemblies and all that happens in those assemblies, the worship of Almighty God, the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God, the kingdom partnership in the work of God in the world, the fellowship and encouragement from the 
people of God. All of these things happen only when we put ourselves in the midst of this assembly. And when we do it, our minds begin to change, so now we begin to orbit our lives around the centrality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Experience, expressed, declared, remembered, strengthened, fellowshiped around as we gather for worship. If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. This is so important. It's so vital. We begin our week. Listen to me, church. Your week, and you don't know what your week is going to hold. You don't know what's going to happen this week. None of us know what a day holds. But I will tell you this. It doesn't begin tomorrow when you go to work at 9 o'clock or 7 o'clock. It begins today. Today is the first day of the week. And I don't know what might happen this week, but here's what I know. That whatever happens, it's going to come after, behind, and of lesser value than my assembly as God has commanded me with the people of God so that I can think the way God wants me to think. We must make this a priority so that our lives begin to put Jesus first so that he is central and that our lives orbit around him. I want all of you to listen to me. If you're a husband and you have a wife, I want you to lead your wife in this. If you're a mom and a dad, you've got kids, I want you to lead your kids in this. If, if it's you and your household, single, single household, this needs to be the practice of your life and in, impose this discipline upon your own life. That I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I don't know what, what's coming in the next few days, but I know this. By God's grace, when Sunday morning rolls around, my crew is up. They're getting ready. They're getting in the car. They're assembling in this place because this is where we begin. Christ isn't a part of my life in the margins. He is first. He is center. And I'm going to start my week bringing my crew to be at his feet and to learn of him. Man, when you do that, something begins to shift in your life, in the way that you think. I love you so much. And I want you to have a thriving spiritual life. And I want you to be a true disciple of Jesus. And I just know after 30 plus years in the ministry and my own experience and the word of God teaching me this, that you will not be the thriving disciple that God wants you to be if you do not prioritize the worship gathering. It's not possible. And if you're watching online, I love you. But you need to hear me say that watching online is not the same thing. It's not. It's a great tool. If you're out of the area, and we have people who watch from all over the country and around the world every Sunday, they can't be here and they can watch online, that's great. Praise the Lord. If you're sick and you can't come because you're sick, it's a great tool. We're grateful for it. If you're working or you're traveling, it's a great tool. But listen to me. If you have gotten into the habit of staying home, I'm not looking at y'all because you're here. I'm looking at the camera. <laughs> if you've gotten in the habit of staying home because it's easier, because you don't have to get up and go anywhere. And you just walk, I watched. I loved the message. I learned. I took notes. I sang when y'all sang. I was part of it. You were a part of it. You received it, but you didn't give anything into it. And you just equated your comfort, 
your ease, your convenience with the glory and the centrality of the worship of Almighty God. I love you. I'm telling you, don't fall into that habit. If you have kids, your kids need to see this matters. This doesn't equate with a dozen other things in our lives. This is the priority. If you still love your preacher, shout amen. Amen. Now, you may not love me after this, so I asked ahead of this. (laughs) If you have kids who play sports, that take up your weekends, and they're in a league that has them out and you out of worship 10, 12, 15, 18 weeks in the year, I would recommend that you highly reconsider that decision. Now, let me tell you why. Well, number one, because God commanded it. Number two, you and your kids need to align your thinking with Jesus' thinking. Number three, there is a 99.99999% chance your kid's not going pro. But there is a 100% chance your kid will stand before Jesus one day. And there's a 100% chance you will stand before Jesus one day for how, give an account for how you raised your kids, what your priorities were. I'm just telling you. You say, I can be a Christian and not go to church. Of course you can. Of course you can. But if you want to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus, you need to align your life, your mind with the way Jesus thinks. And that happens primarily in this worship gathering. Number two... You need to commit yourself or devote yourself to biblical literacy. Biblical literacy. Listen, here's the problem with the American church. I'm convinced. It is that we are biblically illiterate. We we live like the world lives because we don't know how Jesus told us to live. And the reason we don't know how Jesus told us to live is because we don't know our Bibles. And we don't know our Bibles because we never pick them up. Commit yourself to biblical literacy. Here's what I mean. Read it. Read your Bible. Get in a Bible study. Join a life group. Be in churches, I've mentioned, where you hear preaching. But every single day of your life, you need to read the Word of God and be biblically literate. When we, when we read the Bible and we become biblically literate, we are receiving the will of God, we're learning the ways of God, and we are getting the wisdom of God to live life in this world as his disciple. You can't do it without the word. Worship and the word, those will align your thinking uh, with Jesus. Now, secondly, and I'm done, if you want to be a disciple and thrive as a disciple of Christ, not only do we need to devote ourselves to Christ by aligning our thinking with him, but secondly, he teaches us that we need to uh, learn that disciples die to themselves. What disciples are doing, they're dying to themselves. We're learning to die to ourselves. Let me be clear. If y'all are listening, both campuses, shout online. Shout online. Shout amen. I hope you're still with me if you're online. I love you. Listen, let me be perfectly clear about this. Calling yourself a Christian, at least in today's America, costs you nothing. But discipleship will cost you something. It will. Did you notice we put it up on the screen earlier? Luke chapter number five talks about the call of Matthew. It says that Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And did you notice what it said about Matthew, what he did? He left everything and got up and followed Jesus. It cost him some things. 
Now listen, I want to tell you, following Jesus as his disciple is going to cost you some things. There, maybe there's some friendships that you're going to lose because people aren't going to be friends with a fanatic. Maybe there are some, some ambitions and decisions in your life that you're going to have to give up. Maybe there are some things that you're going to have to, to say, I'm not going to participate in that anymore. It's going to cost you something. But let me tell you what the main cost is going to look like. Notice what Jesus says in this passage. Verse number 24, he said, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. The word deny himself means to give up any claim to ownership. See, here's what it'll cost you. Here's what the majority of Christian living looks like in America today. Most most people who call themselves Christians sit on the throne of their lives. They rule their lives. I decide what's important to me. I decide how I spend my time. I decide how I spend my money. I decide where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, what values are important to me. I decide how I'm going to raise my kids. I decide it all. And by the way, Jesus, I'm so glad you're in my life taking me to heaven when I die. You're this nice little add-on to me. But I am on the throne of my life. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is this, where you get off the throne and you invite Jesus to sit on the throne. And then you say, Jesus, you're Lord. I deny myself. I will follow you. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, get off the throne. Let him take up his cross, die to himself. And follow me. Do what I'm doing. Jesus had just said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to, they're going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. If you want to be my disciple, you come with me. You do what I'm going to do. You lay your life down for the glory of God and the purpose of his kingdom. He goes on to say, by the way, we don't have time to really get into chapter 16, verses 25 to 28. But he does say in verses 25 and 26. Now, by the way, if you, if you refuse to do that, he said, no, I'm going to cling to my life. I'm going to be master of my life. I'm going to hold on to it. He said, you're going you're to lose it. It's going to be gone. It's going to be wasted. But if you'll give it up, if you'll deny, if you'll surrender all, if you'll deny yourself and follow me and align your thinking with me and give me your life, give it up for me, then you'll find it. And you'll live the life that will thrive and be the life that God has always wanted you to live. Can I say it? You will live your best life now if you'll do that. But if you don't, you're going to lose it. And you're going to come to the end of your life and people are going to go, well, he's a good guy. Yeah, I think he was a Christian. And you're going to stand before God and you're going to hear something, but it's probably not going to be well done, good and faithful servant. I need to align my thinking. I need to surrender my life and find this life that he wants me to live. And then he closes the chapter by saying, by the way, I'm going to come again, and when I do, I'm going to reward you for how you've dealt with this. And by the way, there are some of you who are standing here who are not going to die before you see what this looks like. And if you go to chapter 17, it's the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John see him in his glory and realize how glorious he really is. Do you want to be a Christian in name only? Or do you want to thrive as a disciple of Jesus? I want to thrive. And I want you to thrive. And I want our church to thrive for generations to come.